Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Bet on Chicago. My name is Joy Christopoulos, and today's episode is presented by BetOnline.ag. And look, our partners at BetOnline, they continue to be the number one source for all your betting needs and sports info. Find the latest odds, news, and sports developments, including the Stanley Cup Finals, Major League Baseball, the latest fighting news, and even next season's early NFL futures. So what are you waiting for? Head to the website and use your mobile device to sign up today. Receive a 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Just use promo code BELIEVE. B-L-E-A-V to get the bonus and get into the action. Bet online where the game starts. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for coming into the pod. I'm very excited to have this guest on here, here on Bet on Chicago. We not just celebrate Chicago sports, we celebrate Chicago culture and Chicago history. And this gentleman right here and his family is cut very, very deep into the fabric of our Chicago history. He is David Cupsonet. Hello, David. Thank you so much for coming on the pod. How are you today? I'm doing great, buddy. How are you? It's so good to be here with you. I'm feeling good, man. It's the summer. It's a Friday, and I'm just kind of really excited to walk a little bit down some uh, some Chicago history memory lane with you for a little bit. And then also, we have a we have a kindred spirit a little bit. We we enjoy the comedy scene, so we are going to talk a little bit about about that style and that life. And if you can, for those in the general audience that maybe don't know, you are the grandson of Irv Cups in it. If you go to Geno's East in Studio City, you walk in, your grandfather's picture is right there, big and prominent, right in the front. And when I was, I told you on the pre-pod, I was telling some friends about this, and a lot of people, surprisingly, terribly, don't quite know exactly Irv's impact on the Chicago scene. I remember him still in the 90s because his columns were still coming out, and I remember stories about him on WBBM and everything, but if you can, for our general audience, please explain, who was Irv Cups in it? Oh, my God. Mr. Chicago. Uh, You know what? It's, uh, it's, it's unfortunate with i think so many so many people uh with great historical stories to tell that uh generations move on and you know everybody in a new age starts to know less and less and less about them and uh that's just a natural thing you know i I mean it happens but uh what a story he had so uh cup as he came to be called or you know mr chicago he um was born on the West side, the son of a bread truck delivery driver (laughs) and Max and Olga were his, his parents. Um, And um, I'll tell you that um, when they came through Ellis Island, their name apparently was Cups and L, but the, uh, the guards, the uh, registers at Ellis Island changed the L to a T and it became Cups in it when they came through Ellis Island. Cup was born uh, on the West Side and um, went to school in Chicago, lived his whole entire life in Chicago, and uh, ended up going to um, Northwestern, uh, ended up graduating college with a, uh, and went right into the NFL and immediately became a starting quarterback for the Philadelphia Eagles for one, one season, went out with a terrible shoulder injury, became a referee in the NFL. Oh. refereed the very famous lopsided game bears redskins what was the score 73 nothing 70 oh my he he refed that game he refed that game he refed that game he was a ref in that game he didn't last long as a referee because when the bears scored he cheered for them he couldn't help himself he was a fucking he was a bears fan. <laughs> he couldn't help it so 
in fact, there are some great black and white pictures uh, where off in the distance of the photo, you can see a bear scoring a touchdown. And as a referee, you can kind of see him like jumping on the sideline. <laughs> the uh, Chicago Sun in those days and the Chicago Times were two separate papers. The Chicago Sun was looking for a sports columnist. And because of his uh, play in the NFL and because he was such a big Chicago sports fanatic, uh, he took a job and, and, and he had been a, a, a columnist for his school newspaper. Too. So he took this job using his sports contacts um, and ended up becoming kind of the go-to uh, newspaper man for the athletes uh, in the area. And then um, the Sun and the Times ended up merging. And I want to say that was uh 40 let me see 40s or 50s sometime i can't remember exactly um and when they merged they needed a gossip columnist somebody to go up against new york's big gossip columnists in the new york times and cup was the natural fit in chicago at the time because he already had so many great sports contacts and the advantage he had in those days was that all the celebrities traveled between New York and Chicago. I mean, I'm sorry, New York and Los Angeles, but they traveled by train in those days. And the trains all stopped in Chicago for the night. And all the celebrities would come down to the city and go to the pump room, the Ambassador East, go to uh, Mr. Um, uh, you know, uh, oh God, I'm blanking on the name of uh, all the great old clubs but all the spots where Cup made his uh, rounds every night. And so because of that, he ended up having access to every celebrity there was on their way back and forth across the country. And in the course, he ended up becoming such good friends with some of the biggest people there ever were. Uh, my sister and I grew up calling Frank Sinatra, Uncle Frank. Um, I mean, <laughs> like the biggest people there were, were like loved Cup. And he took everything in such a in such a stride. He was never uh, mean. He never spent his column bad mouthing. Well, I can't say never. There were a few people he didn't like and things he didn't like. But there were some competitors the, along you know, the way. Yeah, you know, but th people th that wanted to were, knock a guy off the top. Yeah, yeah but th things were different then. You know, it wasn't uh, this battle, uh, diehard uh, uh, war between media sources. You know. Um, uh, he was not really trying to, he was more spending his column trying to boost people up that he liked, not tear people down he didn't like. And uh, that really reflected years and years later at his funeral uh, when virtually everybody made the comment that he was one of the few people you could absolutely trust. If you told him something that it wasn't for public consumption, he kept it. Uh, and, uh, you know, he'd rather build you up than tear you down. So, he was just a good guy. He was, uh, you know, a Chicago West Side guy. He was, uh, you know, from the streets of the West Side in those days. Um, and he and grew up like, with that kind of mentality. It seemed like he had a couple of opportunities, too, as well, to perhaps maybe go to New York or Los Angeles. And he was quoted as saying, Chicago, I can't imagine living anywhere else or being anywhere else. And I, I was trying to find comparisons or see if I can maybe describe it for maybe more of a, a millennial term or whatever, but like, think about it. And you just brought up a great point of like, I thought of like 
that Yahoo front page front page with all the salacious gossip and everything, you kind of read it and you can already tell right away by the headline what angle the person has yeah. already on the particular piece. But I think what you're talking about was the original form of and, and now we kind of say it in more of a derogatory way, gossip, but like that gossip column though was really more about breaking news. I mean, one of the first ones it I was. want to start with was in nineteen fifty two, Harry Truman he Irv broke the story, Cup broke the story in nineteen fifty two that Harry Truman wasn't gonna run for president again. Like that's the kind of news that he was breaking early and often in his in his career and then for decades moving forward. Uh, Cup was uh, a source of unbelievably privileged breaking news for like a good 40, 50 years. And he was syndicated for a long time all around the world. I mean, he was syndicated, you know, in Europe and, and all over. Um, and he broke huge, huge news. Now I can tell you, he had a very, very close relationship with Harry Truman. They were very close friends. Harry Truman's daughter was traveling once from DC to Los Angeles and spent the night in Chicago, ended up spending, I think, two or three days in Chicago. And Harry Truman called Cup and said, please, I'm sending her to you. Would you look after her? She needs this, she needs that. Uh, he and my family, he and his wife, Essie, my grandmother, my father, Jerry, Cup's son, and my aunt, Karen, Cup's daughter, uh, they spent the night at the White House with Harry Truman several times. Now, I have a letter framed in my father's office at his house, and it's on White House stationery, and it's a letter from Harry Truman to Cup explaining why he has chosen to drop the bomb he's about to drop, to drop on Nagasaki and Hiroshima and what his judgment is based on. And please don't judge him. Signed, your dear friend, Harry. Oh my God. That's not, yeah. I mean, it's, it's just, it's, it's, inc it's, it's incredible. It's really incredible. And uh, now we, we spend most of our times uh, pouring over the details of Amber Heard and Johnny Depp's trial, but these are, these are the scoops. These are the true scoops that obviously launched the, the thousands of careers of journalists moving forward. He also had a show on WBBM for many, many years, just a short list of the people that he had on his show. He had guests like Richard Nixon, and there it is, Cup Show right there. The, the famous uh, mug from the show. Mug, mug from the show. Richard Nixon, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, Muhammad Ali, Jimmy Hoffa, Judy Garland. Just to name a couple, I mean, Irv, Irv held, he held court with so many of the most prominent voices in American history through the generations yeah. of, of different time. Can you just kind of bring us in a little bit more of – what was it, do you think, about his personality that, I don't know, I don't want to say made people trust him, but just allowed him to forge so many relationships? What were some of his characteristics that really helped form all these different things throughout his life? You know, it's so interesting you ask that. I was thinking about that recently, and I was thinking about it because um, I'm not sure today's society with Facebook and social media and people's knee-jerk reactions to, thing, to things, I don't think Cup could have existed today. I don't think he would have been received the same. I think in the day, it was much easier for somebody like Cup to, without people immediately going to sides, do things like 
give Martin Luther King Jr. one of the first televised platforms to talk about what so obviously needed to happen. Um, and Cup was one of my favorite kind of things about him was um, his, even though he was, I, I think, more known as a, as a liberal or a Democrat, I always thought of him as such a neutral, just compassionate, kind of central, logic-based person. And the things that he, that I took from him, the things that I would hear him say were always based on um, things that just made sense, things I haven't heard our society talk about a lot lately. Everything is so extreme now. But I think back then, he, he had one platform where he could welcome on in one night Jimmy Hoffa and a, a, a revered priest in the Catholic Church. And Jimmy Hoffa debated this priest and like essentially just mopped the floor with him, like almost had the priest being like, yeah, you're right, religion's stupid. I mean, like it was almost like, wow. I mean, it was, you know, and people were, were glued to it, but nobody, you know, in those days, people didn't want, there was no Facebook. They couldn't get online and everybody have an opinion. Well, you know, Jimmy Hoffa likes Disney, so I'm boycotting him. You know, I mean, uh, it is no take you know. a take a side, right? It's the whole take a side mentality that we have now, which is such an interesting point right. that you're bringing up that he's playing that you can converse and interact with both sides of the aisle, right? I mean, you know, Cup was also known. I think today it would be sensationalized and say that he had mob ties when he just knew people that were involved, right? Like. Just like everyone else in life, maybe you had a yeah. neighbor that was involved in organized crime. Does it mean that you have mob ties and the way that we make that distinction and that correlation, I think, is way different than maybe it was, you know, 20, 30 years ago? Yeah. You know, um, yeah, uh, that's such a, an interesting topic you bring up. Um, boy, have I asked a lot of people uh, as I got older, asked a lot of his closest friends, the ones who were still alive. Um, to tell me the real truth, you know, who was my grandfather really? And virtually across the board, I've heard he wasn't connected like that, but he knew everyone in the city and everybody wanted something from him. So he had friends everywhere, but he, you know, everybody, it was a respectful thing. You know, you, you wanted to mention, you know, you do something, I invite him somewhere, you, you know, and there's no, talking business like that he wasn't uh and i was gonna say maybe you know, it was good maybe it was good business just to you know god forbid just know these people and just have a mutual relationship with them that didn't have to have didn't have to be transactional right but he probably right. needed to know them just because of the industry and the circles that he ran in just so he can you know be on a level with them right like you know business, and, and you just know them yeah and you're talking about Chicago in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. Yeah. And it's yeah. like, if you're going to avoid the mob, then just move out of the city. I mean, you're not going to, you know. Well said. The, you yeah, know, yeah. every club that you're meeting the celebrities at is, you know, uh, owned by somebody who also owns a garbage company. I mean, it's. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. I, I also want to maybe if we can rope back a little bit to the sports aspect, because this is the yeah. one that I, I didn't know at all. I mean, I, I knew about. His columns growing up, but I had no idea that he used to call Bears games too, as well, with Jack Brickhouse. Yes. After yes. the referee. Oh I my mean, God. 
what what can what can you say what can you tell us a little bit about that there are some stories some of them are funny some of them are a bit legendary um you know he, uh, and he what, and was Jack. That, what was that experience like those two personalities together i can't even imagine on a call they absolutely loved each other and uh i mean they had moments where they did not but they loved each other and had such a funny friendship um and I think between the two of them, they probably missed as many calls as they as they got in the games, just being busy talking about other stuff in the booth. And then all of a sudden, Jack would look up and be like, oh, my God, he caught the ball. Cup, you distract me. <laughs> um, but, you know, but, you know, uh, Jack once said something funny. I have to remember, we were all sitting at lunch one time with his very sweet wife, Pat Brickhouse, who just recently, I think, passed away. Um, Jack said something about how um, Cup was so interesting because the two of them would be sitting there in the, in the booth together and he'd be trying to call the game. And all of a sudden, uh, President Gerald Ford would walk in and like put his arms around Cup and he'd say, I'd miss like the next 10 calls. I, the president just walked in. What am I supposed to do? I can't even watch the game at this point. I don't know if I should ignore him or stand up and meet the president or what. And um, so they missed a lot, but. Um, I wish we had him last part- year with the Bears season. The Bears season last year, we probably could have used some cup and Jack. You some know, distraction, right? Been, boy, you could, there's a lot of seasons. I can't count the season since 86 that we have needed some distractions. <laughs> I, I don't need I don't need any more information about Moses Moreno. Uh, just just take right. us away, take us out of this place, Jack and Cup, and just talk. Did you read about the uh, the uh, bears at Lincoln Park Zoo? No, I did not. Please tell us. Please so uh, so uh, at one point, Lincoln Park Zoo adopted these uh, or got these um, little bear cubs in uh, from wherever they were from. And uh, they were growing up and, and uh, they, people were kind of keeping track of them in the news, yada, yada. One day, uh, oh, but they were both supposedly boys, okay? It was two boy bears. And then one day, uh, oh, I forgot the most important part. The, the Lincoln Park Zoo named them Cup and Jack, okay? Cup and Brick. So these nice. two bears were adopted by Lincoln Park Zoo and they were named Cup and Brick. One day, Cup gets pregnant, the bear. All of a sudden, they find out, oh, my God, Cup's not a boy bear. Cup is pregnant. So, of course, that goes to the next weekend's game when Cup says, everybody, Cup the bear is pregnant, and now you know what Jack has been doing to me here in the booth during every game we've had. And so they had a little laugh about that and they implied, you know, some things and they had some fun at the bear's expense. (laughs) And, uh, but the two of them just had a great time is the point. They both were just such bears fans, but it's not like either of them really should have been the ones calling the game. They were just so such excited bears guys. And I think what was so endearing about them was just how much they loved being there and loved the Bears and just loved watching football. You know, the memories growing up as a little boy in my family was like, if you didn't play football, you might as well just move out. I mean, like nobody would accept it. You know, Cup was such a Bears fan. My dad was such a Bears fan. I had to play 
uh, ball in school. Um, and uh, when I started in 10th grade, I was afraid of being hit. And Cup didn't take that well. <laughs> you know, Cup, talk, he worked with me until, you know. I love, I love football. Be... Yeah, I love football. I cover football. I tried to play when I was uh, a sophomore in high school, which is probably too late, right? Probably too late to really kind of get hurt. I... But yeah. I got out there, man, and I, 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 I suffered the same thing, man. I mean, I could probably – I could, like, gin up the anger and rage that it takes on a play-by-play -play basis to actually really play the game correctly. But every second or third play, I didn't have it in me, and I'd get destroyed. Right, right, and honestly, right, right. I, I, was, I was miserable. I quit. I quit after, like, six or seven weeks. And I'm not here to like promote quitting on this podcast, but it was the greatest decision I ever made in my life, David. I'm telling you, I was miserable. I'd come home. I was battered. I was bruised. I was getting my head wrong. I didn't know how to tackle properly. And, and all just to wear this uniform and get screamed at all day long. I mean, like, fuck that. I'm just going to watch this game on Sunday. <laughs> Sorry, dude. Like, uh, Yeah, well, it, it, it wasn't many years after high school I would start agreeing with you. But in school... Uh, there did come a time where I realized, wait a second, football is the emotional outlet I've been looking for. I'm allowed to hurt these people. Interesting. And then I started looking forward to games. And that took, that's how I managed my angst through high school. I took football. it out on, uh, I took it out on heavy metal. I mean, I listened yeah. to, I listened there to really go. heavy. I, I had that, that's, that was my version of my outlet. I did want to ask you too, because you mentioned growing up calling Frank Sinatra, uncle Frank. Um, what would you say if you can, obviously you've only lived your own personal experience, but I don't think a lot of people have gotten the chance to do that. How growing up around so many celebrities or prominent media personalities and figures and big characters, how did it change what I think, I mean, how do you view celebrity? How, how was that able to sort of change for you? Did it give it a humanizing aspect at a young age? So as you went into the business a little bit later or how did uh, how did you ingest just being around so many, you know, just prominent prominent famous people? I think that uh, when it is, um, I can't say I grew up around it all the time because as uh, when I was pretty young, my father, who's a TV, who was was a TV director, moved out to Los Angeles, so I grew up. Judge Mostly Joe Brown, right? LA. He directed he he directed Judge Joe Brown for many years, correct? And Judge Judy and Christina's Court, and oh, he started a lot of those daytime court shows. He he was the, the director on Judge Judy for a long time. Unbelievable. Yeah. And um, but yeah, that's him. That was my dad. He just passed away a couple of years ago. Um, and uh, so, uh, you know, the the magical sparkly part of Cup to me was the city of Chicago not the celebrity. Chicago was the celebrity to me because uh, I only got to go back there as a young kid, Christmas, you know, spring break, the summer, uh, you know, emergencies, God forbid, you know, cups in the hospital or something like that. Uh, and when I was there as a young kid, uh, boy, Chicago was the most magical place because that's where cup was. That's where everything was a show all the time every it was like fairy tale land like I could just go anywhere I wanted and virtually do anything I wanted it was like you know I want to go to this bar but I'm 12 oh well I'll just call the director of PR oh cups little kid come on in what can I get I mean it's like get him no, some phone you know, books put some phone books on yeah. that bar stool <laughs> get him you know here. 
Listen, uh, when I was 10, my dad finally said, okay, you're old enough now. You can start going on the annual fishing trip with your grandfather and me. And uh, so for the next eight years of my life, until I was 18, uh, Cup got too old and we stopped going. Uh, we would go every single summer, uh, end of June, beginning of July. Cup, my dad and me, and then three of Cup's closest friends, we would all go out to Miami and we would use the Wirtz family yacht, the Black Hawk. Uh, of course, you know exactly who and what I'm talking about. And we would go out on the Black Hawk for a week and a half, two weeks, deep sea fishing in the, in the uh, Bahamas every summer. And it was uh, mine and Cup's birthdays, both in July. So I just had this amazing bond with him. We would do these amazing things. And, uh, you know, one year um, we were near Nassau. And, uh, boy, who was it? Merv Griffin that owned the big hotel casino uh, in Nassau. Um, yeah, I think it was Merv Griffin. Uh, so th they sent a big helicopter out to pick us up off the yacht one night, uh, off of like this little boat and then the helicopter. Anyway, uh, they fly us back to the casino and we're sitting in the casino having this amazing dinner. But, uh, you know, that's not the part I paid attention to. Uh, the celebrity was, they were all kind of the same. They were just more friends of the family or friends of whoever. Uh, the part that I liked was uh, the places. Um, I liked the adventures. Mm. Um, the celebrity didn't matter much until I got older. Um, you know, and I realized um, who, who had been a part of my life and who, that, who they really were, you know. Yeah, absolutely. One. I I just find I just find it very interesting because obviously we live in a day and age now where we revere celebrity to the point that maybe yeah. it's a little bit more unnatural and unhealthy, and it's just it's just funny to if it's Sammy Davis walking into one room or it's Frank Sinatra walking into another. It's just you well, can maybe just get used to it and just realize that these these are just brilliant, talented people, um, but maybe take away some of the. I don't know. There's a mystique going on with celebrity that I think is ratcheted up to a level that I don't think we've ever seen before. And we lived through Michael Jackson. You know what I mean? Well, I, I can tell you this. Uh, my father one year directed the Jerry Lewis telethon, the Jerry Lewis Labor Day muscular dystrophy telethon. So yes. we were all so we were all out in Las Vegas for that. And uh, because it was Jerry Lewis and he, was, he had been a friend of Cups, Cup and Essie flew out to Vegas as well. And it was a whole I was a young kid at the time. This is probably, I don't know, 88, 90. I was 10 or 12, something like that. And um, uh, so Cup and Essie, my family, were all out in Vegas for like three weeks, staying in this huge, crazy suite. And the suites I was kind of used to. I just expected whenever we traveled and Papa Irv was there, we were going to stay in a suite that was like a whole floor. And that's just, that wasn't unusual. Um, and every night of that trip, we would go to see these shows and then go backstage and meet the people every single night. So I remember so vividly watching Bill Cosby's stand-up in one of the hotels and drinking my Shirley Temple with my sister, getting half of the jokes, watching Cup and Essie have a great time. And then we went backstage afterwards. It would just be Cup and then... 
you know, how are you, my old friend, and this and that. And then we would sit and hang out, and it was just enough. We went in to see Sammy Davis Jr. backstage, and he hugged me and said, I'm so glad you're here. You're the only person shorter than me. And everybody laughed, and I only sort of got it. And I said, okay. You know, for all everyone out there, I mean, and this is according to a Sun-Times profile, is that Irv scooped that Michael Jordan was retiring. And the way that Irv found out was that he had a relationship with Juanita Jordan, and she was talking to him at Comiskey Park that night when the White Sox played the Blue Jays, and Jordan was throwing out the first pitch. A game, David, that I was at as a young youth. Really? Um, yeah, super excited to watch the White Sox in the playoffs. Um, it was really like a dream come true. And then around that sixth inning, people in the aisle behind me and in front of me start going, Jordan's retiring, Jordan's retiring. And I just, you know, I, uh, you know, metaphorically shit my pants during that game. Um, but you know what? That's still, that's still what, that's 93, 94. We've been talking about stories from 52, 59, 60, 70s. In 1994, Irv is still getting that scoop. And that perhaps, David, is one of the biggest scoops. I went to journalism school. That might be one of the biggest scoops. I don't know about Chicago sports history, but also maybe in Chicago history of the last 50 or 60 years. I mean, that, that was a seismic, a seismic thing. Well, you know, I'll tell you, it wasn't just, I mean, that's kind of a perfect example, actually, of how Cup ended up getting these scoops for so long. It wasn't just, sometimes you'd have some big person's person call in the office, call yeah, Stella, drop it. or call Cup and drop it. But so often, that's not how the scoops came in. The scoops came in from the, the, the societal interactions of Chicago life. You know, Chicago is a small city, not geographically. Well, that too. But the Chicago culture is a small thing. Everybody's connected. It's sort of an incestuous relationship of all the people who kind of like are the people in Chicago. Mm -hmm. And they all sit on a lot of the same boards, you know, uh, from your green tie balls to your, you know, Essie started the Chicago Academy of the Arts, a big performing arts school. <laughs> the governor's and a Pritzker. A the governor's a Pritzker now. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, you know what I'm saying? I mean, yeah. it's, you know, it's the same names in Chicago. Uh, you know, as long as they keep having kids, those names don't go anywhere in Chicago. You know, Daly said it best. Nepotism's okay as long as you keep it in the family. I want to talk to you a little bit about your career. Um, you know, you are, you are a stand-up comedian. I can't imagine. I, I mean, dabbled. I dabbled. dabbled. Okay, well, obviously, you know, the last three years have not been kind to people in stand-up comedians. I'm a former sketch performer myself. I don't really do it anymore, you know what I mean? But I still love to wear the badge that I've enjoyed being up on stage and in front of people. And the last three years, we really haven't been afforded that. And I guess, like, I don't really want to get into – because we're going through a course correction in comedy right now, right? Where I think there's a lot going on. And I don't really want to get your opinion on what is right and what is wrong. Because I don't think that that's important. But have you also noticed, as someone that has enjoyed making people laugh, that maybe while we're trying to go through this course correction in comedy, there is a lot of less laughter in the world, I feel like. And I feel like that's something that we're also kind of missing a little bit. Do you feel that as someone that's enjoyed the concept of making people laugh? Uh in, through performance? Not only do I have the perspective of this uh, coming from someone who tries to make people laugh, but uh, I also um, am 
fairly involved in the very, very, very heated topic of law enforcement versus communities right now. That's a big part of uh, something I'm working on. And so, um, like you said, without talking about what's right and what's wrong, um, our country is very, very angry uh, at each other, at the government, at everything, and we should be because we have been flooded with just nothing but things to be furiously angry at and reasons to be divided about them. And, uh, you know, it's such an interesting thing. You hear people say sometimes, get off social media, turn off the news, get outside, go talk to somebody. We're not as divided as you think we are. That is true, actually. I, I find that not with groups of people. Groups of people are as divided as you can be. Not good. But, you go, but you go talk to an individual person, just one-on-one, and most people's first inclination is, unless they're directly affronted by something in their face, is to just be nice, is to be just a, a human being and just treat somebody nicely, uh, or at least decently. And I think... Uh, you know, I created a project I'm trying to bring to life right now, which is entirely, entirely based on this principle, getting out of screaming mobs, screaming angry mobs, and coming together one person at a time and trying to make a difference in situations, um, trying to have just two people talk to each other and learn each other's humanity before they even address an issue. And I found that, uh, that that's how you make a difference. That's how you make people feel better about something. Problem is, we've got like 6 billion people if we're going to do that. So we're going to need to do that like 3 billion times in the world to make everybody feel better. And I don't know if we have the time for that. But uh, coming up, we have number <laughs> we have number yeah, four thousand exactly. fifty six yeah. meeting with uh, number 278 uh, coming up. Yeah, <laughs> okay. yeah. Uh, yeah, 1,298,000,000. Oh, crap, I'm 138. Can you um, hold my spot? I have to go to the bathroom. Yeah, exactly. But um, we, we are an angry, angry population. We've got a lot of things to be angry about. And if we're not angry about the thing, then we're angry at each other for how we respond to the thing. Oh, my God, how can you possibly think that is one of the most uttered phrases in today's society. And when you start saying that to a comedian who's telling you jokes, it doesn't, you know, when you start getting upset by jokes, we're, we're, we're losing something important here. We're losing well, something important. And you're, and you're tapping into something too, as well as, you know, if people are angry um, and they don't feel like laughing, um, they're going to do everything they can to stop that laughter. And then next thing you know, there's less of it. And then yeah. you're malnourished in that particular category. And, um, but you know, yeah, at the no, same time, you, some people do this after they've gone to a comedy club and they bring that attitude with them to the comedy club. And then they end up working against themselves because they might feel like they have a point to make to that comedian but all they've really done is alienated a room full of people who did want to hear the jokes and who now hate that person. 
And yep. now they don't care what that person's, re you know, once you don't like somebody, you don't care what their reason is. You just don't like them. You well, have to already appreciate somebody in order to care what their reasoning is. Otherwise you just don't like them. I was about you to know? say in terms of, I think the project that you're, that you're endeavoring, which I, I'm, I'm really, I'm super like interested in now is the concept of it's really easy to hate someone or, don't, or dislike someone if you don't know them. Yeah. Super easy. It's the easiest That's thing exactly in the world. That's exactly what it is. It really is. And I think, and I think, I don't think we're like advocating for, you know, hugging and shaking hands with neo-Nazis or anything like that. But I think the general concept of cohabitation is a general level of respect in trying to know someone. And I would like to think the people that do have, that do have true hate in their hearts, if they knew more people on the planet, I think they would maybe look at some things a little bit differently. I'm not saying that they're going to turn into angels all of a sudden, but I do think they wouldn't necessarily be as enraged as they are right now. And conversely, those that – I mean, I know a lot of friends. We, we both live in California, Southern California, and there's a lot of people that, that say, you know what, if you're not on my side of thinking, you can just not be a part of my life. And I get it. Yeah. That that's a solution. It's an easy solution, but I don't know if that's the answer. Right. I, I, I think that's one road that you go down, but I don't know if that's the ultimate answer because yeah, that, um, there's a lot of quality people that are very confused that say awful things right now. And there's a lot of quality people that uh, believe in things so deeply that they're not willing to see other people's side of the conversation. And yeah, so that's kind of where we are. And it, it's absolutely tough. And then there's less laughter. You know, then we're not laughing yeah. together anymore. We can't make fun of each other or rib each other or, or whatever that may mean, you know. You know, I I, uh, <laughs> I grew up watching things like Blazing Saddles and and History of the World, and uh, you know Airplane, and all these great, amazing comedic uh, masterpieces, just gold mines of pure humor, and not a single one of those could even be. Listen, when you can't, when there's Christmas songs getting banned, like Baby It's Cold Outside. You can't play history of the world anywhere and expect that's going to go. Uh, but I think everything, everything, in fact, the darker it is, the more you need to find the humor in it. You, at least I do. I, I use humor to cope with all of the pain and anger and sadness in the world. I think a lot of people who uh, have approached comedy as an outlet do that. Um, you know, there's a there's a common uh, perception, which is true, that comedians are some of like the least funny and like most unhappy dark people, like uh, like when they're not on stage, you know. Yeah. And boy, you know, I've had conversations with comics who are like, "My God, there's not a funny bone in your body when you're off stage. You almost make me want to kill myself. You're so dark. Get back on stage. I want to like you again. You are a dark, <laughs> dark person. My God, I don't even want to have coffee with you anymore." Take me there. Well, yeah. and, and look, I think the, I think the knock that they give that people will give us comedians is that you know, like like you just said, people can will say, well, you're taking things too lightly, and I and I disagree. I think what it is is I just think it's us trying to have perspective upon our flaws, and trying to work through them in a way that doesn't create some sort of burden that is so overwhelming and unbearable that we can't live our lives. We can always live our lives. We can always get better. And sometimes just looking at our own flaws or other people's flaws and pointing them out. And maybe having a little joke about it, you know, it's funny because it's true kind of thing. And, you know, we're just trying to cathartically work through it a little bit. And that's a bit of our process. And I just I, I, I am I'm on board with a lot of the stuff 
that I think that we're trying to do with certain aspects I, of comedy. Of course, I'm not like advocating people jumping on stage. I think that's terrible, but we just, we need to c encourage laughter more. We just, we just do. Absolutely. I'll tell you something that I was uh, telling a friend of mine just a couple uh, week or so ago, we were talking. Um, uh, there is a reason I think just my personal theory that um, comics tend to have um, a, 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 an interesting view on society at the time. It, it, it requires a lot of introspection to sit and dwell, to come up with good jokes, yes. as you know, good jokes, you know, Good jokes can pop up because you're drinking with your friends, but they might, they're not usually that good of a joke the next day. Really good jokes, I find in my experience, come from kind of staring into space for a long time and you think about an issue and all of a sudden you go, well, isn't that some funny, ironic stuff? Um, and it requires that same introspection, I think, um, that we use to write jokes to kind of look at society as a whole right now and take a step back out of it, kind of look at it from the outside and go, let me take a deep breath. There are forces at play I can't control in here. Let me get myself. I, I think introspection is extremely important. An ability to critically analyze is extremely important. And it's something I've found a lot of our culture has not been displaying lately those two I, things it's certainly it's certainly lacking and i i try and and i have to and i have to be honest i have to try and catch myself too i've been wrapped up in a bunch of stuff this last couple of years and and i and i agree and maybe and i'm hopefully I'm hopefully eternally grateful that comedy has allowed me hopefully the opportunity to at least have a couple moments where i'm allowed to maybe look at myself in the mirror and have that introspection uh, i'm not saying that i do it all the time or i'm perfect at it but i can be grateful that i at least get a couple chances to do that because maybe there's other people that don't and I feel like that if you don't get the chance to do that, you're probably suffering in this world. Absolutely. I completely agree. And, you know, no, nobody's uh, nobody's Mother Teresa over here. Certainly not some no. Chicago born stand up comic guys. That's uh, the whole point, though. I, 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 that's the whole point. Um, and, you know, I, I, and I'm not asking anybody, like you said earlier, to go out and give hugs and handshakes to, to strangers. Nothing like that. I, I don't I'm not preaching the whole world needs to come to this kumbaya moment. I just think everybody needs to, huh, we need a national day off of Facebook and social media. That's for sure. We are not supposed to all know every bad thing going on in the world everywhere at one time. We are not built to know that. We're supposed to know like, you're supposed to know like the Sherman Oaks paper. What robbery happened in Sherman Oaks? Oh, that one. Okay. I'll avoid that corner today. And then you go on with your life. But you are not supposed, our brains are not supposed to know every horrific, my God, horrible, catastrophic thing that has happened everywhere in the country all the time. It's too much, man. It'll make anybody want to go shoot up a school. I mean, I, you know, how do you keep this kind of angst? We're just a friend of mine on social, on Facebook, just the other day, shared some story and said, everybody should be really upset about this. And I said, how many things can we be really upset about? Like tell this article to take a number and get in line because there's corruption at every level of our government. There's wars going on. There's homelessness and poverty. There's people who can't afford their insulin. There are children shot in schools. There's you know, so I many mean, to count. What so should we be upset about today? It's, it's you know.
What are people going to do? Well, and that reverts back to also is I always try and think of when I get overwhelmed by stuff like that, I always try and think of, you know, how can I help the people that are directly closest in my life and or my community? Because I am only one person on this planet. And if you can just spread it just a little bit, maybe it can spread out larger and expand. And that's the best that I can hope for. The other thing, too, that doesn't really help out with social media is um, when you're not having a good day and you get 95 likes on a picture of eggs Benedict that you took at a restaurant. That's not supposed to happen either, David. That's not supposed to help you out either. Um, we got we got to wrap up here because, uh, man, I'm having such a wonderful conversation with you. But I do want to rope back to this one thing. You mentioned it. I feel like I yes, breezed past it a little bit. And I would love to just hear you said that you were you were working towards a project. You don't have to get towards specifics in terms of law enforcement and communities. Can you just talk like in general, what is your what is your hope? Um, what is perhaps the maybe the message or the action or reaction that you're hoping to possibly get with this project? Um, what are you what are you looking to gain? Are you looking to bring them closer together, more awareness, advocacy? What are you what are you thinking about on that cause? I've spent a few years now in Chicago and California and in states around the country, uh, meeting privately with uh, mothers, pastors, priests, police chiefs, SWAT team members, prisoners, gang members, convicted felons, people who have lost siblings, uh, mothers who have lost kids, and everyone else related to this issue in any tangential way. And what I came up with was a project to try to put two people through at a time, only two, everybody else can piss off. Um, and the goal of the project is to destroy, um, hopefully destroy the walls of, of, of justifiable mistrust that have been built between communities in this country historically and build bridges of dialogue and humanity and one-on-one -on -one understanding into the future. Um, because if we don't do it two people at a time, then we're left with screaming mobs and all that is is war and it's futile and it doesn't mean anything. And we sit stagnant like we're doing now with a problem that just persists and persists and persists. And we never really tackle the core of it. And so it doesn't go away. Um, and that's my goal. And in order to do that, two people need to step into each other's shoes in all ways in life. And they need to understand what each other knows. There's two truths at play, not one. There's not one side that's right and one that's wrong. There are two truths at play in our streets. And uh, it's it's very difficult to get the believers of either one to acknowledge the other one. But when you're talking to a friend who you love, you acknowledge their truth. When you're screaming at a stranger, you don't give a crap about their truth. Yeah, and that's what it's all about. Wow. Um, well, Godspeed and um, and Bravo and um, you know I look we're we're just meeting for the first time and i really enjoyed our conversation but but that act alone, and, that, and that pursuit alone honestly um just whatever for whatever it's worth for me to you i think you're making the cups in it name proud 
by doing something like that. So so bravo in that pursuit. If there's any way I can support in the future, please let me know. David Cupson, and thank you so much for coming here on Bet on Chicago. Such a pleasure. Today's episode was presented by BetOnline.ag. 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. When you use promo code BELIEVE. Also, if you go to Baseball Lifestyle 101, BL101.com, they are running a promo. If you do Joey Sports Guy in their promo code, you get 10% off, off all their baseball apparel all summer long. David, man, such a pleasure to meet you. I'm so happy that we got a chance to get connected, and I hope we can stay in touch, and I hope I can bring you back on the pod sometime soon. Man, that would be great. And uh, we we live nearby, so you know, we'll, we'll. I'd love to, you know, do the show anytime. I'd love to jump on anytime. There's something fun to talk about. Yeah, we can do that, or maybe we can grab a grab a drink or something like that. We do live in the neighborhood. Uh, there's no reason we should just live a zoom a zoom friendship moving forward. I'll tell you what, it's hard to find a good place for lunch when you're from Chicago. It takes a while for your taste buds to die after you move here. But when you get used to the new kind of food, there, there's places around we could go. <laughs> oh man uh we'll figure it out everyone thank you so much for checking out this pod be well be safe please be good to each other and make sure you check out the rest of the pods coming next week until then remember when in doubt always bet on chicago thank you for listening to believe you can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.